0: Points to Ponder, by Nir Minusi. This podcast is made possible by our kind supporters over at Patreon. Vaigash, awakening tshuva. I'm sometimes asked whether, speaking before an audience, I'm not actually trying to return them in tshuva, that is, to get them to become religious. Of course I am, I immediately respond with a smile. And then I add, there's just one problem. I don't think it's possible to return someone in tshuva. A person isn't a book you can return to the library. Tshuva is something only you yourself can do, from your own free choice. I teach, and the students will do with my words what they wish. Today, when we speak of someone doing tshuva or returning in tshuva, we mean that he or she has transitioned from being secular to religious. But the original meaning of the expression is much broader and deeper. It means rectifying oneself and returning to one's spiritual roots, both to God and to one's higher self. In this sense, tshuva is the deepest spiritual and psychological process there is, Nothing is more essential to our being than recognizing that something in our outlook or way of life is mistaken, and then working on rectifying it. Consequently, there is something inherently paradoxical about the awakening of tshuva. On the one hand, it must start from within. Only the chick knows when to hatch out of its egg. If someone tries to break the egg for it, its growth can be ruined. This is what criticism and rebuke often do. They make a person shrink back, thereby hindering their development. On the other hand, because tshuva entails the unpleasant realization that we're not living optimally, we tend to react with defense mechanisms. These can manifest as either self-justification or self-flagellation. In either case, the result is the same. We further entrench ourselves in our familiar lifestyle and don't change. Teshuvah, therefore, needs help from the outside. As the Talmud says, a prisoner cannot free himself from prison. For a chick to develop in its mother's egg, she must sit on it and keep it warm until it hatches. The upshot of this paradox is that the ability to stir a person into tshuvah is a subtle art. In our parsha, Vaigash, we see it masterfully demonstrated by Tamar Tamer, Judah's daughter in law, in a way that would change history. Let's recall the story. Tamar marries Judah's firstborn son, but then he dies because of his sins, leaving her a childless widow. Following the biblical laws of leverate marriage, She is then married to the next brother. However, he too sins and dies. Judah, the father-in-law, is now obligated to marry Tamar to his third son. However, being unaware of his son's sins, he is afraid that the cause of their deaths is Tamar, that she is like some kind of black widow that somehow caused their deaths. So in order to buy time, Judah instructs Tamar to wait in her father's house until the third son grows up, until he's mature enough. Time passes, and then Tamar sees that Judah is really postponing the wedding indefinitely. He's not planning on marrying her to the third son. She then concocts a daring plan. She dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Judah himself at the crossroads. Having nothing with which to compensate her, He leaves her his staff, his signet ring, and his cloak as a deposit. The next day, he sends a messenger to pay her and take back his belongings. But she is nowhere to be seen. Three months go by, and Tamar's pregnancy, she was impregnated in that encounter, her pregnancy becomes apparent. Judah, to whose son Tamar is still officially betrothed, is furious now that she has committed adultery and commands that she be burnt at the stake. In response, Tamar sends him the three articles she had received from him and adds the following key sentences. From the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please recognize whose ring, cloak and staff are these. Notice Tamar's words. She could have said, I'm pregnant from you. And here's the proof. Yet she didn't do this. She decided to use the third person. From the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. As if she's speaking about someone completely else. Only after this does she address Judah in the second person, and even then in a way that leaves things open. Please recognize whose and cloak and staff are these. Tamar's actions are really ingenious. She had planned everything from the outset, and now she finds herself poised at the most crucial crossroads. If she remains silent, she would certainly be put to death. However, confronting Judah will not only publicly humiliate him, but also there's not knowing what he'll do afterwards. In her wisdom, she chooses a middle path. She presents Judah with a metaphorical mirror, allowing him to recognize his wrongdoings on his own and repent for them. Judah, in his pride, had climbed up a high tree. Tamar, in her humility, placed a ladder for him to climb down with. The plan succeeds. Judah admits his guilt, and Tamar lives and gives birth to twins, from whom descend no other than King David and the future Messiah. Tamar's act continues to reverberate in the annals of history. It's fascinating to compare two examples of people who, like her, held up a mirror to sinners, however with opposite results. The first negative instance is described in one of the most famous literary creations in the world, Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hamlet is a prince whose father the king has died with the throne passing to the father's brother. One day, Hamlet discovers to his shock that his uncle, in fact, murdered his father in order to take his place. Lacking proof, Hamlet invites to the palace a group of traveling actors and asks them to put on a play about a king whose brother kills him and takes his place. The performance causes the evil king great distress, but rather than steering him to repentance, to tshuva makes him want to kill Hamlet. The end, as expected, is tragic. There's a confrontation between Hamlet and his uncle, and both die. Compare this to the Hasidic story about the two holy brothers, Rabbi Elimelech of Lejansk and Rabbi Zusha of Anipoli. For a long time the two wandered from shtetl to shtetl, staying in inns and encountering many people. With their finely honed spiritual senses, they could see all the sins that people had committed, just by looking at them. When they met a sinner, they would put on a small performance in front of him, though not addressing him. Rabbi Zusha would tearfully confess before his brother that he had committed the exact same sin as this man. And then his brother, Rabbi Elimelech, would comfort him and explain how he could gain atonement. Their words would penetrate the sinner's heart. Confronted with his sin, yet freed from their watchful gaze, he would have the space he needs to reflect upon his deeds and then repent for them, do tshuva. Point to ponder. People awaken to tshuva, to self-improvement and spiritual growth, not when censured or rebuked, but when they are helped to recognize their sins on their own. However, this requires that the helpers themselves be working on their own self-rectification. If they degrade the other in any way, they will only hinder their progress. But if they approach them with a pure heart, they will awaken them to true and complete Teshuvah. Hi, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like and subscribe. You may also consider becoming a supporter by going over to patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash